You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. How did you get your start? Because I know you're a songwriter, you're a writer, you're an actor, you do so many different things. What was kind of your first love? Acting, always. How did you decide that you wanted to be an actor? Well, it was something I always did in school, you know. It was my number one extracurricular choice, football and acting. But it was just sort of it was my default activity in school. I mean, I'm going way, way back to like nursery school, you know, playing uh, the Easter Bunny and the Easter Pageant and stuff like that. I, I sort of attracted the parts and was attracted to the parts, even at the most sort of, uh, you know, jejune and, and uh, innocent and uninvolved level. Um, uninvolved level, I should say. And when I got to uh, high school, uh, you know, I was the uh, president of the Dramatic Association. And then when I got to college, I joined the uh, extracurricular the student acting group, you know. I ended up general manager of that as well. I don't know. I, I mean, the, the choice. Well, I had done this De Palma picture uh, in 1967. Uh, I went to Columbia University. Do you have any idea what went on at Columbia in 1968? I imagine that it was uh, pretty tumultuous with uh, student protests. Yeah, the kind of university shut down. We managed to bring the university to its knees. So spring basically was, you know, and I had no classes. I had nothing to do. And, and uh, ended up in this diploma picture called Greetings. Over the summer, it occurred to me, I started thinking about it, well, I can either go back to Columbia and be a French lit major, or I can do this, which is what I really want to do. And uh, oddly enough, what pushed me over the edge was uh, taking a friend back to Penn, University of Pennsylvania, which opened about a month, started for some reason about a month before Columbia did. And the Penn campus was much more attractive, green trees, you know, and she was living in a house in a nice area and you know, in a big park across the street and stuff. This is as compared to uh, 113th of Broadway in New York, which at the time was a gritty, and it's all gentrified up the ass now, but at the time it was grim. And and that, in combination with the other things, that just sort of split. So I dropped out of Columbia and uh, went, oh, my parents were thrilled, of course. But then... The following spring, De Palma made a, a sequel called Hi, Mom, and uh, called me to be a gnat. And in the meantime, in Chicago, and through, through connect, my parents' connections, I'd gotten a job uh, in the touring company at Second City. You know what Second City is, I presume, man? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was picked up out of Second City by a guy named Paul Sills, who was the founding director of Second City, sort of the inventor of Second City in his his mother and inventors and codifiers of improvisational theater. So there's somebody with a source of original ideas you know, in the theater. So, of course, all that went with him and did uh, a number of shows with him. And then I heard from De Palma again. Uh, he asked me if I wanted to be in uh, a film about a rock and roll impresario. And, uh, his fate at the hands of a... Uh, fan of the opera-like guy, and so sure, says I, too young and dumb and full of calm to have any reason to say no, you know. When it came time to uh, distribute that, to look for a distributor, he took it to uh, uh, L.A., and he called me and said, you know, uh, if you were ever thinking of coming to Hollywood, this would be a good moment. Uh, uh, you're pretty good in this movie, and everybody in town is going to see it. So I figured, you know, I think, why not? I haven't got anything better to do. Sure enough, he was right. I mean, as soon as I got to Hollywood, I started working pretty much right away, you know, in TV shows and uh, stage, oddly enough, and eventually movies, you know. So it was a, a series of right decisions for sort of the wrong reasons, if you know what I mean. It wasn't, it wasn't, a, at, at no point was it sort of a driven decision, you know, I'm going to be an actor. But when it came down to it, it was the only way I could describe myself. You know, somebody said, who are you? What are you doing? I said, I'm an actor. Nothing else seemed to fit. I'm a French lit major. Well, yeah, 
had it, but it didn't fit in the same way. Do you know what I mean? So it was, uh, as I say, it was my default position automatically. My default self-image or whatever. You know, I am an actor. There wasn't really any other choice. I mean, I've been a waiter. I've been a cab driver. But I'm not a waiter or a cab driver. I'm an actor. Moonlighting as a waiter or a cab driver. You know, trying to keep yourself from starving by being a waiter or a cab driver. What were those early De Palma films like? Well, again, I, I'm a stretch. I was young and stupid and really didn't know anything different. You know, not, not stupid, ignorant. The Greetings, for instance, the first one, I was still a sophomore at Columbia. And uh, as head of the, the Columbia Players, the general, uh, general manager of the Players, which, as I say, was the extracurricular student drama group. By purest chance, I happened to be in the office one day during a non-production period. In other words, we weren't working on a show. We weren't about to put anything on. The office was empty, you know, just like, like deserted during a period like that. And I just happened to be down there one day. I can't remember why at this point. And the phone rang, and it was this guy saying that uh, uh, he had been general manager of the players uh, 10 years previously, whatever it was, a dozen years or something. And that now he was trying to make a feature film, and he thought maybe for old time's sake that the players could help him out. But um, I can't remember what he asked for, either rehearsal space or maybe wardrobe or something. And I said, sure, of course, you know. And he said that he was also looking for two or three actors with the, the, the real actor with comedic experience, you know. And maybe I knew somebody in the fine arts program or... Uh, at the Minor Latham Playhouse across the street at Barnard. Uh, if I knew anybody like that, I should send them down to see him. And this is as close as I ever came to making that conscious decision to be an actor. I, I said, oh, sure, of course, of course. And what is your name? And he said, De Palma, Brian De Palma. And here's where you send him his address on West End Avenue. Okay, Brian, yes, I certainly will. And I never told him another living soul. I just went down there myself and spent three, four days uh, in the producer's living room improvising around ideas that Brian threw out with uh, a couple, three, uh, two other actors. Uh, one of them was there every day that I was there, and that was Bob De Niro. And the third guy sort of, the, the third was a variety of guys that rotated through. And uh, so that's how I ended up in Greetings, which, is, which has a scenario but no script. We improvised the entire script. And it just came naturally to me. Don't ask me how or why, but I just it just did. And Brian would make a suggestion, and I don't know, off, off we'd go. And there were certain specific lines that he wanted said, but otherwise we were free to improvise. And the, the next one, a year later, Greetings got a high mom, mother, which is actually considered the better film. Greetings won the Silver Bear at the Berlin Film Festival, but High Mom is considered the better film. Uh, anyway, it was the same kind of deal. So with stand-up, I was allowed to improvise like crazy, as long as I got in certain key lines that Brian wanted said. Uh, I know drug wheel from real wheel is perhaps the best known of them. And uh, there really is a phantom. That was another one he wanted me to say. That scene on the stairs, I was trying to escape, you know. But everything, everything all the other lines of mine that people like dry up turbo and uh, stuff like that, uh, uh, that was all improvised. And great George Memoli, who played Philbin. Uh, and the branch of my relationship was one of mutual confidence, you might say. Uh, he trusted me to give him what he wanted in the way of content and intent, you might say. And uh, I trusted him to keep me on the rails uh, to make sure I stayed with the program and didn't go completely off the deep end, you know, and to tell me when he liked it and didn't like it, just what you would imagine. And so those those three pictures were very that was a very freeing experience, especially the first two. If I hadn't had that experience with Brian, I I, I don't know. I might have ended up a French lit major after all. I'm not sure. No way of knowing. But you know that that there was that it was greetings that really opened the door to this other possibility uh, that had nothing to do with college and academics. How did you get involved with Beware the Blob? Damn good question. Um, I, to tell you the truth, I can't remember. I don't 
make that audition for him. Is Larry Hagman's deal. And why was they there? I cannot, I'm sorry to say, I cannot remember how I ended up involved in that. But Larry was a great guy. And, uh, the entire thing uh, was filmed inside a great purple cloud of marijuana smoke. There were a number of uh, famous potheads uh, involved with that epic. And uh, he did provide me with my first sort of true Hollywood experience. Uh, he invited me to his house in Malibu, in the Malibu colony, which I don't know if you know, is like a separate gated community that you have the past of guard gates on and it's huge houses right on the sort of this barrier dune on the beach. Uh, he had uh, a, a jacuzzi and we were all invited to uh, get naked and get in the jacuzzi including um at this point, I have a tough time remembering her name. Uh, a very attractive and uh, hot uh, blonde starlet of the time. And not not too wide, but somebody like that, I, I cannot remember. And Peter Fonda, and this all was blowing my mind like crazy. And the, the houseboy came around with the, uh, a tray, a small tray that had glasses of champagne and joints laid out on it. And uh, the rest of the evening was sort of a, a day's thought. But that, that was my introduction to Hollywood. And, uh, but why I was there at all, how I ended up in the movie, I can't imagine. I haven't seen it for a million years. I do remember wearing a series of gorilla masks. Right. I think you even quoted or uh, credited as the ape suit party guest. Yeah, that sounds right. As I recall... I asked the crop uh, guy or wardrobe guy, whoever it was, for as many eight masks as he could find, so that every time I pulled one off, there was another one underneath. That was my big contribution to that movie. And then I believe I got eaten along with everybody else, yeah? It's got such an interesting mix of people. I mean, well, Larry Hagman and then Godfrey Chain. Uh, um, the Bridge, that's right. Yeah. The um, Bridge is Meredith. I know it is a weird, uh, weird. I was really, I was really young. Uh, I think I, I went out to LA for a, a year in 1970. I think I may have done that during that year, in fact. And then I moved back, uh, I, I went back with greetings in 1974, 73, 74. But I think I'd done the way the bomb during that earlier year. Carol Lindley, that was the blonde. Baba Haba. But yeah, Cindy Williams, with whom I ended up working several more times. I'd forgotten she was in it. Dick Van Patten. Yeah, they should have left it frozen in the Arctic. <laughs> yeah, so that, I did that. That was the one thing of note at all, I guess, that I did during that one fruitless year that I spent out there, uh, 1970, 71, which otherwise was a total loss. Yeah, you really started cooking when it came to, like, well, right after Phantom of the Paradise, like you were saying, like, 74, 75, 76. That's what you were just in a ton of stuff. Yeah, Phantom made all the difference. You worked with uh, Stocker Channing in uh, Just Friends. What was that like? Well, I, again, that was one of those things in which uh, we were friends, socially first, Stocker and I. We had a number of mutual friends in common. Uh, she had been uh, in the... Uh, uh, whatever the Harvard uh, theatrical, that the Harvard Playhouse, whatever it was, they, 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 their collegiate acting group, along with uh, people like Tommy Lee Jones and, and uh, uh, others. And, and uh, I had a couple of good friends uh, who'd been there at the same time, like Doug Kenny, who, who was uh, one of the founders of the uh, uh, National Lampoon, had come from the Harvard Lampoon and then... And, and, and one of the guys who invented the National Lampoon. There's a great big anthology thing that I've got here that says it's called something like uh, Brilliant, Stoned, Crazy, Dead. <laughs> the history of the, the National Lampoon. Doug Kenny is the guy I'm referring to. He's a good buddy of mine. And he knew Stockard, and there was a guy named, another guy named Tim Mayer who also knew Stockard, and then there was a uh, the older brother of a very dear friend of mine, a non-pro, as they said, 
And so she and she and I sort of knew each other. And um, when the time came for her to do this series, I thought it was sort of surprising that she was doing a TV series, but what did I know? Uh, she called me up and asked me to be in it. Uh, I think, presuming that I would say no, because I was uh, a big-time movie actor. Do you know what I mean? It, it was just sort of apologetic about asking me to do it. And was, uh, I think, sort of thrilled when I said yes, having expected me right along to say no. This is the sense I got of it. And uh, we did the one season of it. It wasn't in, in, in my view a particularly good or funny show. You know, not well written enough to be funny and didn't really make the most of Stockard's particular skills. Uh, didn't use me very effectively either, I didn't think. Uh, but it was renewed. Uh, by CBS, I believe it was, because they had some kind of long-time deal with Stockard. I know that she fought to keep me in the cast, but they ended up throwing me out along with pretty much everybody else and starting again. But they waited so long to make the decision, in my case, that I ended up being paid for 13 shows that I wasn't in. <laughs> and of course, I, by that time, I was doing other things, so there was a period there when I was getting two paychecks Weekly, yeah, it's very nice, very nice. And oddly enough, after that, uh, uh, Stockard, I, I think, you know, it all seemed to me that when I ran into her after that, she was sort of embarrassed or apologetic or something that she hadn't been able to. I don't know. It, did, it mattered, seemed to matter more than it did to me. You know, I, I knew it wasn't it was demonstrably not the last gig I was ever going to have. You know, I don't know. I'm not feeling that. Weirdness between us doesn't seem ever to have gone away. But it's you know it's, it's been some years now since I've seen her. I don't imagine you got paid a whole lot for home movies. For home movies, uh, no. That was in, uh, it was a, basically a freebie for Brian. I, I think they, uh, you know, I don't remember if they put me up somewhere. I think they must have paid my living expenses. But it was only a couple of weeks, as I recall. Again, all improvised. I was wondering about that as far as how much control the students had over the script versus what you were doing in front of the camera. Uh, well, the, all the stuff about Spartanetics and stuff, Brian and I made all that stuff up. Uh, I wrote the, basically all my own material there, with the exception of, as usual, with a few specific lines that uh, Brian wanted in there. For instance, there's that speech from talking to the students and teaching a class. Uh, going on about the you know, people who embodied the Spartan Exit's principle, like uh, Carl Orff, and looking over somebody's shoulder, you know, no, Orff, 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 for some reason, but I thought that was the funniest thing you'd ever heard. So I say that, I thought it was pretty lame, but I had to say it. I presume you know the deal. It was the senior thesis for his Sarah Lawrence film class that he was teaching, right? And, uh, there was a nominal student director, and the only pros were the uh, the DP and there was a pro sound guy. But uh, everybody else, the, the entire rest of the crew was uh, students. Uh, and Brian, well, there's, uh, for instance, there's uh, a little bit of stuff that takes place in Grand Central uh, Station, and and uh, Brian sort of stood off to the side and hid in the shadows while this kid directed this stuff because he didn't... It was that entirely non-union deal. And if Brian had been caught directing a non-union film, he would have been in the... Yes, indeed. And as it was, there was somebody uh, who, who nearly caught uh, us out at that point because we were using a, uh, a Panaflex camera, a real movie camera, you know, big, expensive deal. Uh, which you have to rent from Panavision. I'm sure this is still the case. You can't own one. You have to rent it. Uh, you have to be a pro to be able to do that. And uh, so there we were filming away in Grand Central. And somebody came up to the kid director and said, uh, so, uh, what's going on? You're making a movie? Oh, yeah, this is a little stupid thing again. Well, where'd you get the flex? <laughs> I can't remember what the kid said. All around, there was a big, uh, I can't remember what happened, but obviously we didn't all get arrested. The film that you did after that, Used Cars, is another one of those standout films for me. And again, one of those that 
I remember when I was younger, it was really popular, but now it seems to have just kind of, you know, people know about it, but it's not nearly like, you know, like a Back to the Future or something that Zemeckis would do after that. The studio Columbia ordered the release. They did a terrible job. And Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale and Spielberg, who was the exec producer, and John Milius, who was also one of the producers, and went to Columbia and said, look, give this thing a chance, okay? Because it's directed by nobody, and it's the cast is a bunch of nobodies, except for Jack Warden, who wasn't, you know, people don't go to movies to see character actors, brilliant as he was. So give it a chance, open it in one little theater somewhere, and really find an audience, and build an audience. And if that is, if that's what had been done, I think it would have become the head it deserved to be. Instead, they released it the same week as, uh, you know, the Blues Brothers, the Blues, the Blue Lagoon, and Empire Strikes Back. So it, it really it didn't stand a chance. It didn't breath of a chance, and, and sank pretty much without a trace. And they pulled the advertising, and it sank without a trace. And the advertising key art was a terrible choice. It was a lemon, you know, the lemon. Well, a lemon is a lemon, you know. Put that on the poster, and people are going to, as Yogi Berry said, if, if people don't want to come out to the ballpark, we can't stop them. <laughs> that was pretty much the deal. And I do remember running into the uh, the Columbia exec, Bomb, whatever his name was, at the uh, party for the opening of Stripes, the Bill Murray picture, and saying to him, well, gee, the Bomb, what happened there with used cars? And he started in on this spiel about, well, Gary, sometimes, you know, whenever, and it doesn't matter what you do, whatever you do, a picture just a, and I unloaded on him. Well, you could advertise. That was the end of my conversation with Bob. Yeah, it's a pity about used cars. Phantom of the Paradise, that's a different story. That's a very hard picture to promote. But used cars was a natural. Stripes was a hit. Used cars was a hit. If it had been released and promoted properly. It was a natural. And as it is, it, it was uh, pretty much it, one of the first one or two cable hits, you know. Cable TV started and used cars as one of those things that uh, programmers picked up for cheap, so it was shown over and over again on cable. Uh, and that's where 90% of its audience first saw it. Yeah, I think that's where I first saw it, too. Oh, so, there you go. I wanted to ask you about that crazy stunt that's in there when the uh, car goes right behind you. Oh, yeah. Everybody brings that up. Everybody did as though it was some fantastic, uh, dangerous deal. It wasn't. The stuntman, we had the world's premier collection collection of stunt wheelmen in the business at that point. There was so much driving in it that all the stunt drivers we had were all solid pros, you know, aces. Um, He said to me, look, as long as you don't get too far away from that center line, I'll take care of the rest. I won't hit you, I promise. Okay. So I just started backing down the street, as you see there. And because of the lens and the camera angle and the placement and so on, it looks as though he comes close enough to pick my pocket. But in fact, he was a good yard or, or more behind me. But the effect is fantastic. It, it really looks as though it just barely misses me. But it, it wasn't quite that dramatic. I mean, it's pretty close, but it wasn't quite that dramatic. And I, I had no reason not to trust him, you know. The, the stunt uh, coordinator said, you got nothing to worry about. He won't hit you. And he didn't. I mean, if I'd made a sudden lurch to the right, he might have clipped me, but I was smart enough not to do that. The chemistry of the actors in that film just great you know, wasn't it? oh yeah kurt russell and you and frank mccray i mean just amazing so good we had so much fun and kurt at that point was pretty much fresh off his career as a young disney star the computer wore tennis shoes and that kind of thing uh he had done this uh elvis biopic for tv that had been extremely well received and he was uh, congratulated around in the industry for having done a great job as Elvis. But that was it, pretty much. And beyond that, he wasn't anybody very well-known any more than uh, 
uh, I was or Zemeckis and Gino were, you know. And and we just we had nothing to lose, any of us. So we had a great time, you know. And uh, again, we were given a certain amount of improvisational freedom uh, by Bob Zemeckis, and it was just a very fortuitous assembly of people that caught us all at the right time in our careers. We were all loosey goosey, you know, and ready to do anything at any point. I wish that Kurt had retained his obviously brilliant light comic touch, you know. But before you knew it, there he was, a snake Pliskin escaping from New York. You know what I mean? Not long after that, he played the kind of robot soldier with a barcode tattooed on his neck. Well, that's about as far from his character and used cars as he could get. And that's what he ended up being was an action hero, as I'm sure you know. When I posted that I was going to be talking to you uh, on Facebook, it was bizarre. I got so many people asking about class reunion. Ask Eric Graham about class reunion. <laughs> yeah, what about it? The one question I remember was, did people expect it to be as big a hit as Animal House? I don't know. Animal House was a, a real phenomenon. I don't think anybody expected it to be that big. I mean, there had been other attempts to duplicate the success of Animal House, I think, by then. Uh, but the fact that it had the national uh, national lampoon imprimatur didn't, was no guarantee of success. Um, and it, it's, uh, it has its high points, but it's not as amusing a movie as, as Animal House, in my opinion. Animal House was one of a kind, full of one of a kind shooting star performances. You know, Belushi never touched that performance again. The, the director, again, uh, was a, a friend of mine. He, someone I had known from when he was the director at Second City, uh, and had hired me on the spot to be in the, uh, the road company, um, the touring company. So, and there were other uh, Second City people in it, like uh, Mary Margaret Sin and uh, a few others. Uh, I can't call all the cast off the top of my head. But here's an interesting tidbit. You know, the guy uh, who plays the, uh, the poor, unfortunate, uh, crazy murderer, uh, credited as Blackie Dammit, you know who his son is? No, I don't. Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Pepper. Oh, that's right. I did read that. Isn't that a crazy combo right there? It happens also to be the one and only film in which I am top billed, little known fact. It was, you know, I, hey, I got to meet Chuck Berry. It would have been worth it just for that, as far as I'm concerned. The, the director, I, I don't want to spend too much time kissing him, but it was, let's put it this way. It was made during a period in L.A. in which pretty much everyone you knew was doing cocaine. And anyone who was doing cocaine was doing too much cocaine. There was no such thing as moderate uh, or sensible cocaine use. If you were doing blow, you were doing too much blow. And uh, it was about the most, about, it was sort of the drug that was the most antithetical to good art, as far as I'm concerned. You could have made better movies if you were all loaded on heroin. Uh, cocaine was uh, the worst, the worst. A lot of wasted time and money during that period. And uh, people lost their freaking minds. I mean, there were a couple of nights when the director wouldn't come out of his trailer, for instance, and the stuff had to be directed by the first AD. Well, he wasn't a director. I mean, he, he, he could do camera setups, but he wasn't a director. He was a first AD, you know, which is basically, you know, the top mechanic on the show. So all in all, I, I, it could have been better than it was, I think. But I'm thrilled that people like it. And plenty of people seem to like it. Uh, well, that's ultimately, when you get down to it, that's all that really matters. If the film works and people have a good time, then what have I got to complain about? You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not in the, never, never got into the racket, unlike many, uh, to, to be endlessly uh, applauded and congratulated and stroked. You know, the two ways you can go when you get to Hollywood. You can be a movie star or you can be an actor. And it's just two separate careers. Uh, you're, if you're an actor, then you concern yourself with what was sort of disparagingly referred to as your art career, you know, which is to say the work. If you're a movie star, that's a whole separate career. 
your career is being a movie star, and you have to uh, constantly be conscious of that aspect. You have to suck up to the right people. You have to uh, present yourself. Uh, you have to come up with an image with which to present yourself, uh, whether it's glamour or bad boy or whatever it is, you know, standard movie star uh, uh, um, uh, stereotypes. A great example of a, of a star is uh, Madonna, who constantly is able to remake herself constantly in a way that keeps her just ahead of the, the leading edge of the curve. So that's really the best possible example. But there are, there are a number of actors who've been able to do that. And there, of course, there are a number of actors who just by force of will and whatever innate uh, appeal they have themselves as, as persons are able to remain in the forefront, like uh, uh, Clint Eastwood is a good example, who's very, very talented at the one thing that he's very talented at, you know what I mean? As an actor, I'm talking about, obviously he's a terrific director. Uh, Stallone, another good example. And even in a way, De Niro, you know, De Niro, when people go to a De Niro movie, they expect to see De Niro being De Niro, pretty much. Well, if you go to a movie that has or even somebody like Meryl Streep, you don't go to see her being Meryl Streep. You get a different something every time. All right, so that's the kind of actor I wanted to be. And not a movie star. I couldn't stand that stuff. The parties and the sucking up and the ass kissing. I couldn't stand it. It made my skin crawl. Probably if I'd done more than that, more of that, I would have been uh, more successful. You know? However, I mean, if you measure success by... Uh, uh, you know, uh, exposure and the amount of money you make, you know. Well, how do you measure success, though? Uh, I I measure, me personally, I, I, I'm, I'm happy if the audience is happy. All the best art uh, it, it involves a, uh, a, a, a moment of, of recognition, a flash of recognition uh, in the part of the audience. Oh, I know that guy. Oh, I've been in that situation. Or I know what that looks like. That engenders a connection between you and the audience, and it's between you and the audience that all the great shit happens. There's nothing I can do by myself. It's as remotely interesting as what occurs in the space between you and me. Right? The same is true. The same is true for. I, mean, I, I had a conversation once, conversation once with Jerry Garcia, who agreed absolutely with that. You know, and I think it's true, even as weird as they are, uh, with Peters. You know, it's that spark of recognition, that instant recognition in the audience that makes any art really click, really happen. And, and movie stars don't get that as frequently as actors. So if you're getting that kind of reaction at, at any point, any, uh, uh, in any artistic circumstance, whether you're writing or whatever it is, then you're doing good. Then you're scoring, you know. Uh, there are a few performances of mine that I can stand to watch and say, yeah, that's what I thought I was doing. And yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, but I can't measure success by how I feel about my own performance. That's a fool's errand. What are some of those? What are the ones that you look back on and you're like, okay, yeah, I did a decent job there? Oddly enough, uh, have you ever seen The Philadelphia Experiment 2? Yes. I played the villain in it. I thought I did some good work in that. For me, I mean, I looked at it, I thought, yeah, yeah, that's just what I thought I was doing. That's right. Uh, that, that's good by my lights. My performance in that. I'm talking about an unknown performance. That's the one that springs instantly to mind, but there, there are some others. Um, um, in a few instances, there are plays. Well, hell, you can never, you know, uh, in, in Hollywood particularly, you could be in the greatest piece of stage that anybody's ever seen in his or her life, but in terms of doing something for your career, it might as well have been performed in Urdu or Greek or, do you know what I mean? It just has no bearing on Hollywood show business. I was in a number of shows like that in LA and with people just frothed and foamed over how great I was, it never resulted in a single job in movies or television. It just doesn't translate in people's minds like that. Uh, but I knew I was good in those shows. And, uh, I was satisfied with my performance and a couple of stage then. Use cars, and I'm not particularly crazy about that. Phantom is good. I think Phantom is a good performance. I've wanted two other little things here and there. I think that your performance in Star Trek Voyager was very powerful. 
Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's that's pretty good too. You know, I mean, if if you get to the point at which you're completely satisfied with your work, you're fucked. Because you're done. You're baked. You know, it's time to retire. You're not doing anything interesting anymore. If you're satisfying yourself, you can't ever believe that you've done the best that you can do. Or you'll never keep going. It won't be the point. You know. But yes, I, I enjoyed the Star Trek apps that I did very much because those shows are always, their stuff is always about something. You know, the, the DS9 that I did uh, was about the morality of fox hunting. And the Voyager was about whether or not you could legislate suicide. The real issues that have real meaning and real resonance in the real world. And uh, that makes them very rewarding to work on. And the character that I did in Voyager was very unlike most of the stuff that I've done. Uh, and in that sense, it was also very rewarding. Uh, and like, I, I sort of stole it, I felt, from their notion of who I was. I don't, I'd done the DS9. I'd auditioned for them other times before. I think they had a pretty good idea for themselves of who I was and what I could do. And I think that... that well, I had to audition for it, but I think it took them a little bit by surprise, you know what I mean? One chance I had to be a regular was, I guess it was DS9, um, and my buddy Rene O'Bergen walked me out for the point. He was a shape-shifting uh, doctor or whatever he was, a shape-shifter. But yes, on the whole, that was a, uh, if I consider all the gigs that I did in, in Hollywood, the, the Star Trek stuff was right at the top. But that's also because they they are so good about maintaining the quality of their shows. Slavish attention to every detail. What did I say? Slavish attention. <laughs> attention. Slavish attention to every detail. Even with shows that have been on the air for five years. You know. good example was my first day on Voyager. They kitted me out with the Star Trek uniform. You know them. Starfleet uniform, and uh, they'd given me a, a, a Starfleet haircut with the pointy sideburns and stuff, you know. And uh, it was the scene with um, the uh, that show's version of Doctor Spock, I, you know, the the, the uh, my brain is. Oh, that was uh, Robert Picardo as the Doctor in that one, right? No, uh, I'm talking about uh, 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 the the what was. Spock, he was a Venusian or a... Oh, he's a Vulcan. Vulcan. The Vulcan character in DS9. A uh, young black guy. Right. Uh, Tuvok. I can't remember his, yeah. his real name. Yeah. Right. And my first day was a, a, a scene or two with him. And at one point, one of the producers just sort of wandered in and took one look and said, No, stop, 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 stop. This is all wrong. Uh, what's the problem? Well, his hair. He doesn't have Q hair. You should have Q hair. Okay, what is Q hair, sir? What's his own hair? It's the way he looked when he came in an audition. That's Q hair. And he shut down the entire production for 20 minutes and a half an hour so I could go off and wash and dry my hair. And that is a hugely expensive decision. But they didn't even hesitate. Yeah, especially on a weekly show like that that is just has to run like clockwork. Clockwork. That was very impressive to me. So intent on husbanding that show just like the other ones uh, they wouldn't let you get off the rails for a second they every detail every detail every moment they paid attention to it to make sure it was right and and that it hewed to the uh, the original intent and purpose of the entire enterprise as it was you talked about you know how you've been in horror and sci-fi things now, and you can go to conventions and people come up and you know ask you to sign things. What are some of the big ones for you? Of course, Phantom of the Paradise, but what are some of the other ones that folks will ask you to to sign or to talk about? Well, Star Trek stuff and uh, television turns out to be a much bigger cult hit than I would ever have imagined. Oh, it's such a good one. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. That's so. That's for sure. It's a wacky deal. Such a great cast again in that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, again, I'm fortunate that Mary Warrenoff and I were old friends. So we had, you know, we were just hand in glove from the first day. Uh, talk about inventive souls. You could hardly do better than the, 
You get a lot of uh, Bud the Chud, Chud too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that has its fans, definitely. There's another instance of, of, of my being fairly satisfied with my work. You should be. That's a great one. Yeah, you know, it was... Uh, again, the director, there's a buddy of mine, uh, David Irving. I've known him for quite a while socially. I knew that he was a director, you know. So he called me up and asked me if I wanted to do this little low-budget picture. Man, I can't tell you how many times friends of mine called me up and said, come on, will you do, will you do a scene or two in this little low-budget picture for me? Will you? That's how I ended up in Chopping Mall, for instance. Uh, half a night's work in Chopping Mall. This is not something I would have sought out, if you know what I mean. The producers who had bought the rights to the Chud name we're expecting Chud 2 to be more capitalistic, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers, you know, blood and gore and people being disemboweled and whatever. Uh, but David, David had an entirely different notion. And he, uh, he made me his co-conspirator. And basically, it's Frankenstein played a little bit for laughs, right? Right. The monster just wants to be loved. Uh, I mean, there's a, the, the ultimate literal depiction of it is when I pull my heart out of my chest and offer it to her in a great moment. I don't think the producers were particularly happy. Uh, and it's an uneven film, but at its best, it's really terrific. It's a wacky moment at the end and Robert Vaughn peeps out from under the cover of the uh, pickup truck and announces that he's working undercover. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that one it it stands up too. I mean, that is one that I definitely appreciate still today. Yeah, I, I think it doesn't do as well as the, as it ought to at the autograph shows. You know, it has its fans, but it doesn't sell anything like the the, the number of the, the pictures that the uh, fandom fandom is the top seller definitely. You know? uh, and used cars does well, and uh, as I said, the Star Trek stuff. But there's a lot of good things that I think ought to be more popular, like Brother Chud. And they just, I don't know, uh, maybe I haven't hit the right crowd yet. One that, that uh, stands out for me that you were in, and I'm not sure if it stands out in the right way, is Rat Boy, the Sandra Locke picture. It is a real oddity. Wow. Yeah. What was that one like to be on? What was that one like to be on? She was, at the time, she was... Uh, uh, Eastwood's sweetie. Uh, and when he and his company, Mount Paso, made a deal with Warner Brothers for X number of pictures, he made them include at least one picture for Sandra to direct, right? Uh, and that was part of the deal. And that boy was it. And she got uh, Clint's A crew, you know, the best DP, the best first AD, the best unit, his A unit. Um I suppose I must have auditioned for it. I auditioned for, you know, as, as odd as it sounds, now that I've been saying my friend this, my friend that, my friend the other thing, but I auditioned for uh, at least 85%, 90% of the things I did. It, it's, a, it's a real oddity, that film. That boy, as you probably know, was played by uh, a woman, an ex-Disney Mouseketeer from the original Mickey Mouse Club show in the 50s. Right there, you got kind of an unusual circumstance. And, and Sandra kind of knew what she wanted, but she wasn't a very forceful director. I haven't seen, there's another picture I haven't seen in a very long time, but it, it seemed, my recollection of it is that it doesn't really gel. You never really get a sense of purpose and drive. Yeah, it just sort of lies there like a lot, as this thing, without really catching fire. I don't know if that was Sandra or or uh, the script, whatever. I remember working as hard as I could to liven things up. Uh, I think a really stupid wardrobe in that one too. Uh, by stupid, I mean stupid, fun. You know, I should look at that. And some of these things I should look at again. I haven't seen them for a while. I, I want to see Brother Chud again. I I, <laughs> I ended up doing. Uh, a small part in David Irving's next picture, which is called the, the Perfume or the something or other. I, 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 there's something or other, the Perfume. 
That was the shooting title anyway. And I had one scene with Chris Christopherson, unpaid, and it was a non I don't know. And anyway, I'm credited as Bed T. Judd. <laughs> you got credited as that a couple times, I think. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I want to see uh, Night of the Cyclone. That's it. And that's, that's the okay. That's, that's the one that has uh, uh, Christopherson in it, right? Yeah. And then, oh, Cove Road was the other one where you're Bud T. Chud. Cove Road? Yeah, from 2012. Because I was looking up uh, your filmography and I was like, Oh, okay. So he plays these characters, Bud T. Chud. <laughs> I've never seen that. It was directed by uh, a kid around here where I live. He just approached me one day and said, Don't you dare clam it again. Well, I'm making a, a feature. I'd love for you to be in it. Okay. I mean, it's non union, I assume. So, you know, it's got to be sub Rosa, but I wouldn't mind doing a day or two in it, but you want not. And. I think I only did one day. I've, I've never seen. Had you seen the film? No, I haven't. I haven't tracked that one down yet. I don't think many have seen that film. Frankly, I, don't, I have no idea what kind of release he got. He kept saying he was going to invite me to a screening, but it never happened. So I have no idea. There are a couple of things on uh, as you mean like that. The one that the, the shooting title was Building Girl. I don't think that ever amounted to anything. I don't remember very much, but then there's a, there are a few things that I did. That, you know, that, that, uh, for instance, uh, in some island of uh, oh, it's a it's a live part seven or some damn thing, right? Uh, that was a purely money gig. I had a young family. I'm working a while. I needed to make some dough to pay the mortgage and feed my young children, you know. And uh, that's why I did that picture. Never seen it. Not interested in seeing it. You know what I mean? Not everything can be done for the highest of purposes. That was sheer practicality. And there were a few other things like that that I did that I'm not especially proud of. Uh, they were just attempts to pay the rent, so to speak. I have to ask you, how did you end up in Seinfeld? Uh, Seinfeld, I um, auditioned for that. Uh, it was a really great scene. Uh, uh, this guy who's, I guess he was originally singing off, uh, comes up to Jerry outside the uh, town hall there in New York. Said, hey, Jerry, remember me? Yeah, yeah, from Cancer Rising Star. You, you know what that is? Famous club in New York, Cancer Rising Star, where lots of people got their starts. Their starts, yeah. Right. You remember me from Cancer Rising? Yeah, I gave you my spot in the lineup that night. Do you remember? Yeah, that a catch. Uh, we all knew that the uh, Tonight Show people were coming in. Uh, yeah, and so, uh, yeah, I gave you my spot in the lineup. That's it. Yeah, do you remember that? I gave you my spot. Right up. And it goes on like that. And by the end, Jerry's peeling off 20s to get me to go away. Right. <laughs> uh, but that show was in its fourth or fifth or something season. They were kings of the universe. You know? They could do anything they wanted including rewrite the script at the last instant, which they did to get that uh, crazy Joe Muslim character into it. Crazy Joe Davola. There you go. Uh, and uh, so my uh, part went basically from three pages to three lines. Well, this is not unusual in Hollywood, you know. And the, the money was the same, and I was in full clown makeup, so it wasn't that embarrassing. And everybody wanted to be in a Seinfeld episode. It was one of the two worst working experiences I had in uh, two plus decades in that way. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that it wasn't good. Oh, God. It, they just, uh, it wasn't that they were actively nasty to me or anything. It was just that I didn't seem to exist. I, mean, I, I got there uh, at the right time on my first day, and nobody. This is very unusual for a show of any sort in Hollywood. Nobody came up, you know, no second AD or PA or anything came up to me and said, Are you Garrett? Yeah. Okay, here's your trailer over here. And I, I mean, I, I, like, I might have been, I think I'd have attracted more attention if I'd been a tourist in the camera, you know. And when the taping day finished, uh, I was sitting at my dressing room waiting for somebody to come and sign me out. Never happened. I had to go look for, unfortunately, there were 
four crew guys sitting around playing cards. Uh, and one of them was an AD of some kind. I said, am I excused? Can I go? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead, Frank. Oh, jeez. Um, and the weirdest thing is, of all is that uh, a week or so later, sometime later, uh, I got a call from my agent. What did you do to those Seinfeld people? What do you mean? Oh, we got the worst report on you. Originally, they thought they were going to have you back, but never. They don't ever want to see you again. You were so hostile at this. What? Are you sure you're talking about the right person? They wouldn't tell me who had said that. You know, I said to my agent, did you find out who it was that complained about me? So if nothing else, I can apologize to that person. No, they wouldn't cop. No, they wouldn't cop to it. They wouldn't say who it was. Jeez. And uh, my belief is that it all came down to that makeup person who was in a fucking tizzy because they'd sprung this script change on her at the last instant. Uh, and the makeup, the clown makeup, it went from one, me, to three, me, Crazy Joe DeVola, and the stuntman. Right. And she couldn't find three bald caps. You know? Hmm. You gotta have that tight bald cap on to cover your hair so they can paint your head white. And I got there, I was called hours too early, like 8 a.m. for an 8 p.m. shooting. And so I was into makeup first, and uh, she was in a poisonous mood. She lectured me about not, not touching the bowl cap. Don't be, don't, don't fuck that. I, she was, wow, she unloaded a lot of uh, bile on me. And at some much later point, I was sitting off uh, in, the, in the corner, you know, reading a book, and I had on these super duper lightweight reading magnifiers on. And she threw a shit fit. Take those off! You're gonna ruin the fact. Take that! I had to do that. And uh, there was somebody's idea. I can't remember whose. Mine, maybe to paint a slightly poisonous version of the paleontial makeup on. You know, so it was the, the, the pathetic weeping clown. It looked sort of more pissed off, which I thought was a funny idea. And then I, when I was thinking about it afterward, after this, and, and it worked. I mean, it, the makeup was great. To her credit. Uh, but when I thought about it afterwards, after this report came in about how unpleasant I was, and I, you know, it was the makeup. The makeup that they chose to put on my face to make me look Made unpleasant. you look so mad. But right. I became unpleasant. I didn't know what else to describe it to because I was mad. I was anything but unpleasant. I, you know, for big, big money shows, Seinfeld, you know. Right. You know, I did my best to stay out of the way until I was told to the set. And I did what I did, and then I went off again. You know, yeah, so that was a terrible experience. The other one was uh, the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> the Dukes of Hazard. It was a whole other series of ridiculous experiences, not really worth going into. But Seinfeld, that was a shocker because I expected to have a lot of fun. You know, but hey, everybody has a war story like that. There's nothing unusual about that. Everybody has one or two or seventeen. There's stories like that. I mean, I got a million of them. You know. What are you working on these days? I'm not uh, doing uh, deeply these days, frankly. I've been uh, sidelined by uh, unfortunate uh, physical development. Oh. But uh, I, I keep my hand in by writing lyrics for Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead. Well, the Dead, I guess, is finally going toes up after the recent 50th anniversary shows. Uh, but he has a side. He's always had a band on the side. So. I write for them, and I did that one song that the dead recorded before Jerry died. So I've got a gold record from the great, uh, two gold records from the Grateful Dead. How many actors, you know, can say that? Uh, I think you might be the only one. Damn few. That's right, man. That's right. So that's a pretty cool thing to be able to put in your resume. Yeah, I was wondering, how did you come to start writing for the Twilight Zone back in the, what was that, the mid-80s uh, uh, incarnation? I did an episode of... No, let me think about this for a minute. I'm not sure of the chronology exactly, but I had done an episode, I think, of one of Phil Gear's earlier shows, maybe the one about that uh, fighting squad, World War II fighter squadron, whatever that show was called. Uh, and I also did, as an actor, an episode of the Twilight Zone called uh, Welcome to Winfield mm-hmm. um, in the anthology. Uh, Twilight Zone, the revival 
was one of the three stories on one of the nights. Um, and I guess I must have met the gear then. Uh, but I was, I'm, oh, this is something that I'm surprised has never produced any kind of cult reaction. A film that, the working title of which was The Creature Wasn't Nice. Oh, I love that one. But I love it too, man. I love it too. And nobody has ever said boo dog to me about it. Really? Really. I, 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 I suppose if I could come up with a, even just a cast shot with, with me and Leslie uh, Nielsen and, and Cindy Williams and like me, just the four of us, a, a, a group shot like that, I'm sure people would snap it up. You know, I, I, I would hope so anyway. But uh, that one I haven't been able to come up with yet. I'm trying to... You were... Oh, don't tell me. Because I loved your character name in it. It was... Uh, it was a good, funny character name. Oh, uh, Rodzinski, Rodzinski, right? Yeah. And so every time Cindy said it, and had that kind of special thing, no, no, Rodzinski. No, you don't. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you call, but I had a cat that I wore all the way that had uh, one of the Grateful Dead the best-known Grateful Dead emblems on it. Uh, and uh, before we started shooting, I'd said to the uh, director or the wardrobe person or somebody, I want to wear this cap and the Grateful Dead logo on it. And they said, well, fine, if you can get clearance, you know. And so I called up the Grateful Dead office. I already knew we were at this point a little bit. And said, I want to wear this hat in this movie. And they said, fine, just make sure we get credit. So in the credits uh, to The Creature Wasn't Raised, they get an entire card in the closing credits. Oh, wow. With the, uh, uh, with the Grateful Dead emblem in the middle of it, this black card with the dead em- em- emblem in the middle of it. And, you know, thanks to Grateful Dead Productions or whatever. So Daguerre saw this film, Phil Daguerre. You know who I mean, Phil Daguerre? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the producer of the Twilight Zone. Uh, the the guy who revived the film. And he called me. He had my number, I guess, because I'd done an episode as an actor or something already, and said, how are you connected with the Grateful Dead? And I explained. And I think I used that connection somehow to get him to agree to let my writing partner and me pitch some stuff, which we did, and sold three of them to the show, three stories. Three little stories, which weren't bad. I mean, the stories weren't bad. No, I still remember, what was it, uh, opening day? Yeah. I still remember sitting at home and watching that episode. Opening day, and uh, there was another one called uh, Still Life, about a guy who finds, uh, you know, on an expedition into the Amazon basin, comes across this uh, the campsite of some wrong missing explorer and there's a camera there and the film in it is still viable exposed film and Tizone has developed and it turns out that the the natives and the Indians in the picture come to life and try to kill him or his wife or whatever I can't remember yeah the whole uh, the the souls are caught on the film thing yeah Yeah, exactly that was another one I remember because of uh, I remember your story and then I also remember that same episode had the misfortune cookie with Elliot Gould in it ah I, I don't remember that story at all. But we did the third one we did was called Child's Play, uh, Children's Zoo. It was called Children's Zoo about kids being able to swap their poisonous parents for better ones at this zoo. But, oh God, yeah, I remember that one too. Yeah. Now the yeah. other that reminds me, the other seller at the, the uh, autograph shows is Child's Play too. I'm sure you get a lot for that one. A certain amount, yeah, yeah. That does pretty well. One of the reasons why I think The Creature Wasn't Nice might not be as popular is just because it's kind of tough to find, or at least it was for a while. Cause I'm sure that's true. I'm very sure that's true. It was never given any kind of serious release that I know of. Over the years, it's been retitled. It was called Spaceship for a while. Now I think it's probably mostly known as Naked Space. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's what I know it under. Um, I saw it originally as The Creature Wasn't Nice, and then years later, I saw it again as Naked Space, but I think I was... Because there's another one that Leslie Nielsen did, like 2001, A Space Travesty or something, and I think I was conflating all those things together. Well, it's it's, um, 
not impossible. If I'm not wrong, that was the first movie I can think of in which Leslie Nielsen uh, first emerged as a funny guy, you know, a self-paradizing uh, guy. You know, he, he parodies his own shot with the ray gun from Forbidden Planet when he and I go, that famous pose of his from Forbidden Planet, when he and I go hunting the thing in the corridor, you know, and the big rubber booger, great song and dance number. You know. I want to eat your face. Face would be so yummy in my tummy. Great song, great song. Uh, that is done by the, uh, the writer, director, producer, star, Bruce Kimmel. And I was in it. This is why I was in it. Uh, Cindy Williams and I had had a thing after I did a Vernon Shirley episode. And she and Kimmel were old, close friends from high school or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. She was in uh, the first nudie musical that he did. Yeah. Well, there you go. So she called me and said, come on, do this picture with me. I don't, I don't want to be in this piece of weirdness alone. Come do it with me. So that's how I ended up in it. Uh, I, I saw that comparatively recently. And that is the biggest mugging workout I think I've ever seen in any movie. I... I I pull the cork at the beginning and never stop with the mugging. Am I right? I mug my way through that like a son of a bitch. But it's pretty funny. It embarrasses me a bit to look at it. makes you cringe a bit to look at it, but it's pretty funny. Well, hey, thank you so much for all your time tonight. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. I'm right on time. My handset battery is about to die.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.